people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What? My name is Sam. I'm Alex. And we're here with David Renton. Hello. Who is a barrister and historian who's written a book about the anti-Nazi League and the National Front. And we're going to be talking a bit about the National Front in the 1970s. So could you give us a kind of a brief overview? When were they founded? Why were they founded? What was the kind of crisis in the British far right that led to their founding? And um, they've never fully wrapped up. They never fully stopped. They're still technically around. But when did they cease to be the kind of major political force that they were? Okay, well, the, the, the National Front's founded in 1967, and it lasts to all intents and purposes till 1982. Yes, there's still a National Front after that, but it, it, but it stops being the hegemonic force on the British far right and becomes very rapidly becomes the third or fourth most important group, and it's not even that today. Mm-hmm. So start with why they were founded in 1967. Um, it's founded by um, people who come from three different um, far groups on the far right, one of them is the League of Empire Loyalists, which has been led by a man called A.K. Chesterton, and he becomes first chairman of the National Front. And they're basically nostalgists for um, Britain's lost imperial territories, and they've been doing all sorts of stunts, which have been in the news a lot, about um, how the Conservatives are giving up on the British Empire. So they're the main group. The next thing is um, there's another group, which is the British National Party, not to be confused with all the other British National Parties <laughs> we've had on the far right. I think we're on about six or seven of them by now, um, or by 2019. Then, then already we were on about the third. But um, So the British National Party um, had been set up as a neo-Nazi party, much more so than the League of Empire Loyalists. But the interesting thing about them is that in 1964, one of their members, John Bean, had stood for election in Southall, got um, something like 3,000 votes. And this seemed to establish the possibility of a mass electoral party on the British far right. The third contingent to the National Front, by far the smallest, were people called the Racial Preservation Society, mm-hmm. who were just a bunch of people who'd, who'd come into the far right through the, the proliferation of very, very small anti-immigration groups that were all up and down the country by the end of the 60s. So the National Front set up at a moment of considerable popular racism around immigration, set up before Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, but that happens early on in their history and gives them immense fillip. Um, by 1973, they're probably at their peak membership, which is 17,500 people. They do very well in a number of elections. The most important one, 76 um, and 77, where they get 40,000 votes in Leicester, 100,000 in London. And then they last until really they gamble everything because they're subject to more and more um, insistent and successful anti-fascist protest. They gamble everything on the 1979 election, stand 300 candidates, but each candidate gets on average just 1% of the vote. That seems a massive setback, hugely demoralising, and the organisation splits three times that year and, as I say, is more or less effectively dead by about 1982. And it's really important to say that at one point in the 70s, the NF were the fourth largest party in, in the UK after the Labour, after Labour got the Conservatives and the Liberal Party. So these were a group of people that, that needed to be taken seriously in that time. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, an example, the 77 elections... Um, in London, and, and you know, we don't think of London as, as generally the place where the far right has its breakthrough, but in those elections, there's something like um, 100 seats, 
um, where um, NF and Liberal candidates both stood. And in those 100 seats, something like 40 of them, the National Front candidates, um, scored more votes than Liberals. So, mm-hmm. they were, you know, they're serious. And, and they operated on, along lots of different vectors. I mean, again, I have to see where you want to take any of these. But, you know, you're talking about National Front, which intervened in a number of strikes, which had um, mass support on the streets and which was incredibly violent. One of the examples I give in my book is a particular man, Fred Chalice, who in 1978 is accused of murdering um, an Asian vagrant, but at his trial pleads guilty to 300 incidents of attempted murder, mm. the vast majority of them against black and Asian people. And, um, you know, someone who there's no clarity as to whether he was actually a member of National Front or not. But when he killed this this man, he, he took his blood and wrote in the wall, National Front rules okay. So there's a lot of violence associated with National Front as well as its electoral support. This trade unions thing is really interesting because when you read through their history, you get a real sense of like a real creative energy around the party. They were trying new things all the time. They started a student paper called Spark and they they, 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 they had this trade unionist association, which it seems, a, seems bizarre to think of today even. Um, and, they, and obviously they had the young PMP and later on they tried this thing into, into music when they were just about on their last legs. Um, so I'm really interested in where were, where were all these, how were all these ideas being generated and where were, where, where were these things kind of coming from? Well, I mean, it's, it's not like they're being generated just from a single place. Um, one of the things which gave the NF um, dynamism was that there were a lot of different models about how to organise um, going off at the same time. Different people were trying actually quite different sorts of things. Within the party? Yeah. So, I mean, for example, the League of Empire Loyalists people came over and what they brought over was this idea that essentially um, National Front members should never ever go on demonstrations. But what they should do is they should do stunts and stunts which would get them in the paper a lot. So there's this enormous process of heckling politicians. They'd go on and heckle everyone. Tories, Liberal, Labour, they'd be there, they'd be heckling. And that gets them into the news a lot. They, they'd stand outside churches because the vicar's too left-wing and, and heckle vicars <laughs> in church service. But this gets them in the news. Um, then there are a bunch of... And I'm still really talking about 1970-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, there are a bunch of National Front member, members in East London who get the idea that the way their organisation will grow is by um, is, is by bashing Asian people and just going around a- areas where there's large Asian um, background, just meeting local white youths who are up for that and recruiting on that basis. And obviously that's a completely different way of doing it. Um, around the um, trade unions, um, you've got to bear in mind that, say, 72, 74, some of the most strike-prone years in British history. So there's an awful lot of strikes going on. A lot of the strikes which are happening... Imperial typewriters, Mansfield hosiery, strikes by black workers who um, are saying we're we're upset that we're being paid less for exactly the same job as white workers. The National Front goes into those strikes, tries to recruit foremen, junior managers, and then ultimately workers, and then pulls off quite impressive events. You know, demonstrations of white workers demanding that Asian workers remain paid less than them, behind banners saying, you know. Um, white workers of the world unite, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the people involved in that go off to be National Front um, election candidates, for example, in Leicester. Mm-hmm. And, and later, I mean, you, you referred to the music stuff. You know, there's a whole other period at the end of the decade where the people who join the National Front are essentially young skinheads. Often they've come out of the kind of fighting that's going on at the edges of the punk scene. 
and they've been recruited around, you know, identifying skinhead rather than say punk or reggae music. And that's really, that's really, there's a really interesting little thing in your book where you, you, you actually have this thing where you uh, use the accounts of some FNF um, members at the time, um, if they were, you know, honest about their kind of fortunes um, and weren't like writing hagiographic things about Tyndall or whatever. And a guy called Joe Pierce, who was the leader of the Young National Front, um, saying, seeing the success of Rock Against Racism and thinking, why not Rock Against Communism? And and it's really interesting how there's kind of the interplay between the kind of the fascists and their opposition and looking at each other and how they operate and things like that, which I think is also kind of a, if you look to the like the, the, the drive to like win over youth, um, you know, this was a staple of like, and it still is a staple of like left-wing recruitment and organising as you go to universities. Um, so it's it's really interesting that interplay between the two sides. Yeah, I, I think with Joe Pierce, some of, some of what goes on is really accidental about who he knows, who his connections are. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting because you you read say left-wing accounts of the, of the time. There's, there's a very famous one, it's Dave Widgery's book, Beating Time. And he talks about all the NF members as they're watching everyone's going to the first Rock Against Racism carnival and has them um, being miserable and drinking their tears away in the Bladebones pub. Whereas, whereas now you can start constructing who's actually there in the Bladebones pub. And we know that it was people who, in a sense, were going to plan Rock Against Communism, Screwdriver, that whole attempt that leads to the launch of neo-Nazi music in the 80s and stuff. So... What he saw, which is what the left often sees, is, oh, mm. it's our victory. Mm. Whereas actually, it's a stage in a process. So an important point of, like, we haven't really got to so far is, where anti-fascists, like, correct in their assessment of the NF being a bunch of fascists, where they, um, what was, like, the political core of the party? And and was it, was it, was it more Tory than, a, was it trying to be more Tory than the Tories, or was it trying to be a fascist force in, in Britain? When I first started writing about the National Front, which is more than a decade ago, I'd have gone and said, yeah, they really were just a Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not quite how I see it now. But, but I think before getting there, I think you just have to start with some definitions. You know, like, what is a fascist party? What is a conservative party? What's the difference between them? Right. Um, a conservative party can be racist, it can be authoritarian, but essentially it doesn't particularly try and change the existing state relationships, whatever they are at any particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas fascist party um, is serious about having a counter-revolution against liberalism, against democracy, and particularly against social democracy. Mm-hmm. So they need to have a mass of people organised and fighting for them because they've got to take on each of liberalism, bourgeois democracy, the left, everything. Um, so it's all about the extent to which you're... Um, trying to build a mass movement and the extent to which you're serious about actual counter-revolution against the state. Now, within the National Front, there were always two poles. There was a populist pole, which had an awful lot of former Tories in it, who um, had just given up on the Tories in the mid-1970s for whatever reason. And bear in mind, this is the Tories during the period of Edward Heath, Mm. joining the common market... um, being a pretty unsuccessful electoral party um, was likely to annoy a bunch of people, whereas you have the National Front, which is getting sometimes 10 15% of the vote in local elections, so it can appeal to the cadres of the Tory party. 
Um, so you've got some, we call them the populists, who essentially just want, like the Tories, but more so. There's another group of people within the National Front who um, have a genuine fascist conception of how to do politics. And, you know, this means things like wanting to have a militia. I've talked about the National Front honour guard. It means um, caring about demonstrations. It means um, being serious about counter-revolution. It means being serious about the ideology of fascism. It, one of the things that's really striking, if you ever listen to Martin, um, Martin Webster and the talks he does in the 70s and I'm talking about you know electoral broadcasts I'm talking about talks of really mainstream media outlets you always feel essentially he's read a copy of Mein Kampf from that morning and who, who is Martin? he was the national organiser of the National Front so he's number right. two in the organisation beneath John Tyndall and you always feel essentially he's read Mein Kampf that morning and he's just paraphrasing bits of Mein Kampf back because he literally says things and if you want to be bothered, you can try it. Right, that's Mein Kampf, page 18. That's Mein Kampf, page 36. Generally, it's the early pages. I don't know how far he got into it. It's <laughs> <laughs> but, but, a long book, to be fair. It's massive. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so, so there's these two wings. But I always think that, that basically, if you want to understand their relationship, the whole story of the National Front is it wants to be what we now think is a far-right and populist party but it doesn't have anyone to copy. They've got to be the first, and they don't really know how to do it. So they always revert back to being a fascist party. And you can see lots of different examples. I'll just give like two or three. Like, mm -hmm. you know, for example, when the National Front was founded, they said, we don't have John Tyndall as a member. He's a neo-Nazi. We can't have him. He'll be terrible. They ban him from membership in 67, and by 72, he's not just a member. He's the leader of the party. <laughs> um, you could think about... Um, A.K. Chesterton having quite serious thought-out views about having a populist party which isn't a fascist party, but by 1970 he's been forced out. You can talk about them going more towards demonstrations, you can talk about all, all number of things. And certainly by the end of the 1970s, the people they're recruiting are overwhelmingly, you know, they're young, they're skinheads, they're attracted by political violence, and they're very amenable to someone talking to them the, the whole anti-Semitism, full-on national socialism stuff. You mentioned a couple of things that uh, make the kind of racism of the uh, National Front completely like transparent and obvious. I'm wondering like, what are the kind of constituent parts of this racism? Uh, you think you said somewhere else that John, uh, one of the most effective anti-fascist strategy was, was to have this photo of John Tyndall in a Nazi uniform. And this would, uh, of course, blow up support for him or anything that might have been a support for him uh, amongst kind of perspective uh, people, communities who could identify the Nazis as as bad, even if they had like a kind of a uh, latent other forms of racism. So, what is the content of this racism? Is it an anti-Semitism? Is it just a, a white supremacy in like a kind of a vanilla way? If there is such a thing, I mean, like, what what's the kind of content of the racist uh, beliefs? I, I I think to be honest, it works at different registers. Um, for most people, when they saw the National Front, what they saw the National Front as being essentially a repatriation party. Mm. So the National Front existed in order to take further what we were already seeing with immigration controls and so on. But actually, and, and what Enoch Powell had been starting to talk about, about not just stopping post-war Commonwealth migration, but actually reversing post-war Commonwealth migration. And the National Front were perceived, along with very few other people in British society, um, Powell, but intermittently, um, the Monday Club, as being consistently in favour of repatriation. So that was 80% of their message. And that was their public message. 
internally, um, there was a, another um, message, which was that behind um, the post-war migration, there were the Jews and the Jews because the Jews were leading the communists, the Jews were leading the capitalists and so on. But that, that was very much a coded thing that was for internal consumption only. I talked about the difference in National Front News, which was sold openly, which didn't say that, and Spearhead, where that sort of thing was said. But again, it was said, even there, it was said quite indirectly. The other thing that was raised by, by your question, which I think is interesting, is, is quite hard to pin down, which is it's not quite racism as such, or it's, it's not immediately racism. But, but is in a sense this nationalist and ultimately racist memory of the Second World War, mm. which in essence went, we didn't fight the Second World War in order to let them come here. And the National Front was extremely good at playing that. And I think this is important because lots of people on the left, you know, myself included, have talked about how it's very hard to tell a story of the Second World War, which ends with, you know, the Nazis are the good guys. <laughs> Um, but the National Front did tell a story of the Second World War in which even if Hitler wasn't the good guys, Britain and nationalism and British nationalism was something really essential and good um, and had made all these sacrifices and been betrayed by the, um, the post-war settlement. And so obviously, again, that's part of the totality of their racism. But as you say, they were also vulnerable on that score. Um, one of the reasons why Chesterton becomes the first leader, I and mean, there are a whole bunch of different reasons, but one of them is he's essentially the only veteran British fascist who seemed to have taken the right position on the Second World War. <laughs> Oswald Mosley certainly hadn't. Uh, William Joyce certainly mm. hadn't. But Chesterton had, had, I can't remember whether he'd actually served or he'd been, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd written articles in favour of the war. So he was seen as one of the very few ones in that generation who you could reclaim. Certain uh, figures I've, uh, so Rich Desmond, uh, in who's a National Front uh, member, uh, said that the the Second World War was started by the British. So it's it's a it's a, it's a war of, of aggression from the British establishment against the kind of the German people. This is this seems like a, a really strange uh, claim to make unless you believe that the British establishment is somehow opposed to the British people and maybe even the English people who are. Uh, wholeheartedly in favour of. And the reason why I kind of asked the question about anti-Semitism is, well, obviously because it's a you know, huge part of the far right, but also because um, is the language here of the British establishment betraying the British people? Is this simply a code for Jews? And was it understood at the time as a code for Jews? I think it was, but I think it's important, again, that you, you, you work out which register of National Front language you're talking about. It really is not the case that National Front news wrote repeatedly about how terribly unfortunate it was that Britain had been dragged into the Second World War and Britain should never have got, gone in. Even in Spearhead, that argument's made, but it's made awkwardly, nervously, and at a very high degree of code. Um, the dominant way in which the National Front recruited and won supporters and presented itself was by presenting the Second World War as a good war. And people like Richard Edmonds um, may have known the full sort of Nazi history and be willing to say that internally, but they weren't saying it externally a lot between seventy four and seventy nine. They they had genuine they had genuine fascist beliefs, but they were trying to like move away from them at least publicly. Yeah. They had this like double kind of life, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And no, I'm the when I've been giving talks, the way I've put it 
is as a fascist party that wanted to be a far-right party in the way that far-right parties are today, but didn't have any models, so didn't know how to get there. So it sets off on that journey, but doesn't go very far at all. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's unmistakable now that that was where they wanted to take it. I mean, that's why the NF was formed. It, it was formed because in 1964, a guy called John Bean had done very well in an election in Southall, and they wanted... They, th you know, the people who, who were attending the planning meetings that led to formation of the National Front wanted it to unite around populism and electoralism rather than neo-fascist ideology. But they just had no idea whatsoever how to do that. Which makes it Tyndall this interesting figure because they kind of needed him and like he was their downfall at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's why they kept him out of membership for such a long time. Right. Before, before making him lead it. It's really weird. Yeah. There aren't many groups which have sort of banned list. Anyone's allowed to join except for John Tyndall. And then 18 <laughs> months later, John Tyndall's the leader. leader of the NF. <laughs> <laughs> when you say populism, <laughs> what kind of policies are we talking about? Well, in the NF, um, in terms of the contemporary usage of the term, um, there was always a split between nationalists and populists. And the terms which the populists used about themselves were populists. Um, it was in reality an unstable coalition. Um, I'm, I'm using populist now, the capital P. It was, it was an unstable coalition between a bunch of people who just hated Tyndall. And some of them wanted it to be more like an electoral, um, radical Tory-style party. Some of them had a very worked-out ideological notion going back to Strasserism. Um, but, but when I actually used populism earlier, I meant it in a slightly different way, which is populism, like the way we talk about populism now that, you know, um, more militant, more aggressive than <clears throat> conservatism, but um, like conservatism, allowing the existing state to rule and not having any notion of a national revolution against the existing state. One of the things that's kind of come up in, I think, a few episodes has been uh, strasserism, but we've never really given any kind of definition or we've never really kind of discussed it mm. in a major part. It's a, it's a, kind of a, a major component of these... Uh, movements, James described uh, National Action as a uh, Strasserite group, which is, mm. I guess, a designation that seems, at least to me, kind of to really expand the, the realms of what Strasserism uh, is mostly about. Could you kind of tell us what you think the, the kind yeah, of core I'd, of this? Yeah, I'd agree with you. I, I don't see NA as, as Strasserist. I, I, I think Strasserism is more specific, which is it's a notion that. Um, the 1933 takeover of power by Nazis in Germany was some kind of national revolution, but which was betrayed very rapidly um, by a leadership that weren't serious about the national revolution, willing to make peace with the status quo. And, and again, behind everything variably is, is, you know, the status quo leads to the Jews. But that isn't the interesting bit. The interesting bit is this idea that there was a revolution that was independent of Hitler and Hitlerism. Um, that relies then on, on the two individuals, these two brothers, um, one of whom was right at the centre of what the NSDAP was up to, and the other one of which um, had been a late joiner and early crit critic of Hitler. I think he joined in about 1921 and become mm. a full-time critic by about 1925. But the other brothers in heart with the leadership. So Otto Strass, right? Yeah, yeah. Otto and, and, and Gregor. Yeah. Um, but the, the point about the 1970s is that this is a moment where Trotskyism is a really um, popular and sustainable critique of the Soviet Union. 
And Strasserism kind of works as a right-wing analogy to Trotskyism. Mm, interesting. You know, in other words, that there's a there's a revolution, there's a good revolution that's betrayed from within, and you can make yourself wholly um, devoid of any responsibility for what went on with Hitler by saying we were his first critics. Um, now, you could say as a historian that that massively exaggerates the coherence and the critique that the Strasser brothers adopted, but that's not really the interesting thing about Strasserism. It's it, what's interesting is that it's a developed political critique of fascism which comes from within fascism and seems to allow the fascists to kind of have their cake and eat it to be both pro-Hitler but not responsible for his crimes. I think this is really interesting in relation to something else I want to get onto which is uh, the notion of participation in these mm -hmm. movements. So when you have an ability to cut yourself off mm -hmm. from the leadership and to imagine the leadership is betraying you but nevertheless to affirm something like a kind of organic, I got maybe organic is the wrong word here, but some kind of um, revolution from below or some sort of mass revolution, mm -hmm. a genuinely participatory fascist revolution. Um, it seems like the potential for participation in this movement really increases because the masses don't simply follow a line, but they only, uh, but they also actively participate in the direction of that movement. They have to transform themselves in addition to merely joining a party or attending a rally or this kind of thing. And so there's an impetus on the masses to transform themselves. What do you think in the 70s for the National Front participation looked like? Well, it's kind of difficult because you, you, you talk about different people at different times. Um, for the majority of members of the National Front, and particularly if you're talking about, say, around 1970, um, membership of the National Front means the following activities is that you you pay subs to the organization you um go along to meetings of the organization which are held in pubs um in weekdays um in evenings um you sell um a newspaper national front news which is the um the the national front's um public newspaper you might also sell to select friends as kind of the internal magazine spearhead um, so it's all about membership of a political party. You kind of pass on and replicate the ideas um, which are being set by people in London and nationally. That's, that's how it looks in 1970. By 1978, 1979, there's a different bunch of people around the National Front. They're younger, they're poorer, they're poorer. a lot of them are skinheads. Um, they're more into the kind of things which you were getting at with the comment on Strasserism. You know, they're more into going on demos. The, the initial National Front hates demos. You're only allowed to go on one demo a year, and that's the Remembrance Day march. But by 1978-1979, a lot of them are going to punk gigs, trying to smash up the punk gigs. Um, they're going on mass election leafing, and it feels much more like a mass movement, but it's also a lot smaller. That's really interesting. What I think the image everyone has of the National Front is of young, angry men with a huge number of union flags marching around. That's the kind of popular image of what we think of nas the National Front. When does that start as a tactic? When does that kind of... Is there a kind of focal point or is there a transition point where that... I think the transition point essentially is is as A.K. Chesterton's forced out of the leadership in 1970 and then there's an interregnum by leading to Tyndall taking over in 1972. Chesterton comes with his absolute contempt for demonstrations. He associates demonstrations with the 30s, with Mosley, says you mustn't go back to that. Uh, um, sorry, just quickly, A.K. Chesterton, who, 
who was he? He was the first chairman of the National Front. He had previously been a leading figure within Oswald Moses' British Union of Fascists. He'd been a full-timer for it until half the full-timers were sacked about six months after Cable Street. He then hangs around the non-fascist far right. He's a leading figure in the League of Empire Loyalists, which is the most successful and interesting attempt to rebuild British fascism in the 1950s and 1960s, and is a guru to all the different strands of fascist, far-right, neo-fascist thinking. Anyway, so he's very anti-demonstrations. Tyndall, on the other hand, has a notion that um, that drums, that songs and so on are part of the repertoire mm-hmm. by which people are going to be recruited to the National Front. So he's more into, much more into mass politics than Chesterton. A.K. Chesterton is a... A nobleman or something like this? Or the mm. No? no I'm, I'm, like am I getting you confused like, with someone else? He's not. He's, he's, not. he's no, a journalist. Okay. He's a journalist. He, he's pals with a bunch of people who are quite posh. But, you know, I'm quite posh. <laughs> so I might have different standards of posh <laughs> to other people. But, you know, why people think that A.K. Chesterton was posh is that he was the uh, paid to be the memoir writer for Lord Beaverbrook, who owned a bunch of national newspapers. I can't remember this one, whether it was the Mail Express, but papers like that. Um, and he is funded by um, a guy living in Chile, AK, not AK, but, but like Jeffrey, who's who sends him a vast sums of money in the early 1960s, even in 60s terms, something like £100,000. Mm. So Chesterton trades on that, but he's just, you know, um, a South, Am- South African emigre living in London. Um, I, I can't remember. I think he's been a journalist. I don't, you know, if he hadn't been a journalist, he'd have been a teacher. That's not. Mm. He was like a hanger-on, really. Yeah, yeah. But he hangs on on people who who genuinely are quite important movers and shakers mm-hmm. within the parliamentary as well as the far right. I think this idea of the you kind of brought up of the in- intensification of like state racism that was present already and was increasing was like a big part of the the NF platform. And I just wondered if you could talk about some of like the the big kind of events that they mobilised around. I'm thinking particularly of the um, migration of uh, Ugandan South Asians in 1972 um, and and things like that. Were there like kind of peaks in their kind of like activity in their kind of, in, in stuff they could use in their propaganda? Yeah. Essentially, between about 1967 and 1979, there are three major waves of Asian migration which lead to massive press scares about migration. One's the Kenyan um, Asian migrants who come in 67, and that's the context of the Enoch Powell speech. Mm-hmm. One's the Ugandan Asians in 72, and that gives an immense fill-up to the National Front and leads to them. That's why, for example, they have their peak membership in 1973. Mm-hmm. Is there still, as it were, um, getting the credit of having taken an anti-migrant position then? And the last one is the Malawian Asian migrants, which is 1976 and leads to the National Front selection successes because um, the story breaks about seven days later. Two, two things worth saying about all of these different stories. Firstly, is that all of these post-date um, immigration laws, which are essentially designed to end primary immigration to Britain. So already by 67... You can't come to Britain because you're a British passport holder. Mm-hmm. You can't come to Britain um, because, um, I don't know, um, you can't come to Britain because you've got a job, unless you've got not just a job but also a work permit. Mm-hmm. And the numbers of people coming on work permits is much smaller than it's been in the 50s and early 60s. 
Um, that's why all these scandals are about Ken Kenyan, Malawian, etc., Asians, because they're people who've um, generally their countries had independence as part of their independence peace treaty with Britain. There's been some sort of exception carved out to British immigration rules, mm -hmm. and they're now people wanting to come here. But then that's the second thing to bring out. Um, all these immigration scares, we're told there are vast numbers of people coming here. With the Malawian um, Asians, you know, the Daily Mirror, you know, Daily Mirror is saying that there can be 100,000 Malawian migrants coming to Britain. And this is based on two families in one hostel in Crawley um, who've been spotted by social services. Two families. That's where the press story about 130,000 people is based on. And all of them have this this real unreality to them, this, this massive exaggeration about the numbers of people who are potentially going to hear and the transformation that's going to make. Let, let's talk about um, Lewisham. Okay. Um, Lewisham happens in 77. Um, so sort of November, December 76, you get the launch of Rockets Racism. Lewisham's August 77. The end of 77, you get the launch of Anti-Nazi League. Um the Battle of Lewisham, um, from the perspective of the National Front, this is um, an opportunity, I think, essentially to do what they've done quite successfully in response to the strikes by black workers. In other words, a bunch of black workers are striking for equality. They come in and they um, mobilise the um, the white people who, who are resistant to equality. Um, in Lewisham, the police have raided the homes of um, 18 young um um, black men um, accuse them of mugging. Uh, there's a family campaign against that. National Front hears about that and calls an anti-mugging march. Um, they then bring 800 people to the march. Um, they're met by much larger counter-mobilisation. Um, it's slightly meaningless coming up with numbers because there are different numbers of people at different places on the day, but let's use a number of about 3,000 anti-fascists. Um, they show up, they... Um, smash up the National Front's uh, assembly point. They tear the banners out of the hands of the Blood and Honour, not the Blood and Honour, the um, yeah, Honour Guard, who lead the National Front. They distribute the shrapnel of that of that banner around you know, local black kids in the area. The NF then try and get into Central Ocean, find there's this huge crowd of people mobilised, blocking the way from them. They're led away by um, Tyndall, who gives this speech saying, you know, essentially we've got to arm the British police if we're ever going to have a chance to march again. And this becomes... Um, for the National Front, a significant defeat. It's a defeat which you can still find people on the far right talking about as recently as the last 10 years. Is something they had to learn from. Um, there's also an interesting thing, though, for them. I mean, what the discussion becomes for them, essentially, is were they um, right to march through a largely black area? Mm -hmm. If they're going to march through a largely black area, isn't it just inevitable they're going to face serious opposition, which they won't be able to cope with? And it's quite in, um, one thing I find quite interesting is there's a letter that Tyndall sends to Prime Minister um, Callaghan as if like Callaghan's his friend or something, <laughs> going, you know, we had to do this because if, if, if we're going to give up on the areas of inner city Britain where there are lots of black people living, essentially we've got to give up on the whole of urban Britain and we're not ready to do that yet, which I think was probably more honesty than the situation required <laughs> of him. So um, what was different about Lewisham compared to the the success they had in the com coming into these like kind of worker dispute situations? Why was Lewisham a defeat and these other places they could trade off and get organisers and build publicity? 
I think there are a bunch of reasons. I mean, there, there's certainly a bunch of reasons to do what's to do with what's different in terms of opposition on the left, and to do with, you, you know, you've always got to remember when we're talking about this period that it's only 34 years after the war. Mm-hmm. They're as closer to the war than it is to today. Mm-hmm. Today we're further away from the 70s than people were from the war. So the war's really close, and that means that anti-fascism is really just about persuading a bunch of people, working-class people, that, um, that the NF are fascists. Once you've persuaded enough people that the NF are fascists, there's no trouble whatsoever in persuading people that any amount of violence or whatever is legitimate against them mm-hmm. because people remember the war and, you know, there's still all the you know, ruins of, you know, the legacy of the war is visible in terms of the infrastructure of British cities. So, so that's a different thing. But in terms of uh, on the National Front side, um, I think there's already an extent to which um, mobilisation against the National Front's already started to take a physical toll on the National Front. You know, their, 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 their best year in terms of resisting anti-fascist mobilisations, being able to turn out people for that, is about 1974. Mm-hmm. For a year or two, it's fun. It's a reason for keeping going as the National Front. Then after that, it's just tiring and it's hard work. And it scares people off. And they're already on the streets. There are many fewer people marching with the National Front uh, Lewisham than there were marching with the National Front um, five years earlier on their Remembrance Day demonstrations. Mm-hmm. There's another thing which I think is quite key to, to the National Front's defeat. And that's that on the left, the left goes off and it meets people um, who are involved in these an- anti-police protests. So when 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 the left is saying the police are a problem, the National Front's a problem, there are families in Lewisham who are willing to be the core around which campaign can be built. The National Front never gets anyone similar. You know, when you go back to Imperial typewriters, Mansfield Hosiery, they had foremen, sort of middling between management and worker people who could be the, the local representatives of their campaign. They never had anyone local at Lewisham. They didn't feel they were like they connected to the march they called. They just felt like it was their national mobilisation mm-hmm. for a slogan they called. But the, the demonstration, everything was from outside. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real, real part of why it's such a problem for them. Mm-hmm. What's the function of the police in the state in uh, these interactions between the Anti-Nazi League and the National Front. You said that John Tyndall called at one point, or maybe kind of just kind of an offhand remark, called for the British to be the British police to be armed. Um, what's the kind of what's their interaction with the state here? Um, it, it works in different ways. Um, one of the things which is definitely going on is because you know the war in Ireland's been going on for quite a long time, and because there's been all these strikes. And because the police um, lost the Battle of Saltley Gate, there are all these people demanding, uh, including senior police officers, demanding that the police be much more heavily armed and, as it were, organically move in the direction of a more authoritarian and violent state. And just an example of something which matters a lot to anti-fascists in the 70s, you know, the Manchester Police Force has more guns than the police force in Northern Ireland. It's just true. It seems extraordinary, but it's true. Um so the police is militarising, and that's happening prior to the National Front being on the scene. Um, there's also a sense that, that the government is willing to accept, feels that, that they've got to go some way down letting this, this state become, the police become more aggressive, and is willing to some extent to countenance extremely violent um, restraint, or extremely deceitful restraint of anti-fascists um, during this period. 
Um, so, um, you know, one of the examples I found doing, doing research that really surprised me, because, you know, it's a Labour government in power at this point, mm-hmm. was that in 1977, after Lewisham in Manchester, um, the local police officers cook up a plan, which essentially the National Front would be allowed to march. They announced that the NF demonstration has been banned, but but behind the scenes secretly tell the National Front they're allowed to march and their and their right to march should be guaranteed. The interesting thing isn't on that case the relationship between the police and the National Front. It's the Labour Home Secretary who signs off this plan. That's the bit that surprised me. And then you can find, you know, there's all sorts of screams of anger within the Labour Party when it becomes clear what he's done. But of course, none of this in the newspaper, none of this in public, all of this totally behind the scenes. Um, but but so there's there's these kind of these these sense in which different things are going in the same direction. But, you know, there's a real limit to how far they're going in the same direction. Um, you know, in recent times, people have tried to look at, say, how the police vote in elections. Mm. We've got no evidence at all that the police, that individual police members were voting for the National Front. And if you think about the strategies of senior police officers, I think they saw the National Front as much as an irritant and a nuisance as something which, for whatever reason, they had to support, or at least had to support to the extent of allowing them to march. There really isn't a synergy between the police, except to the extent that the police absolutely throughout are committed to the um, policy of keeping National Front meetings and marches open and, and, and restricting anti-fascists who try and confront them. And that, that really comes to its head in Southall in April 1979 when there's that huge demonstration. You're now talking about eight or 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. The National Front shrunk to just 30 people trying to go into an election meeting. As far as I can tell, it never once occurs to the police for a single second, despite protests, demonstration, calls on them. They never once think of um, cancelling that NF election meeting, despite the overwhelming support of the local community, the overwhelming feeling that it had to be banned, and they just insist on it going ahead. So National Front, so the police see some kind of affinity between them and the NF. It's certainly not going to close them down, but they don't see them as one of their main allies. As a campaign meeting, it must be one of the biggest yet attended. A hundred National Front supporters, three and a half thousand police and thousands of Asian demonstrators. The troubles began early as many of Southall's 30,000 Asians, a fifth of the town's population, blocked off every road to the town hall. By now it was a town under siege. There was no access to the centre. Queues of policemen and police horses guarded each alleyway. Every shop was closed or boarded up. The demonstrators were told they had one minute to move off the streets or face arrest. First of all, address them and tell them that if they are causing obstruction, and if they remain here, they're going to be liable to arrest. So why are you sitting across the road like this? We are sitting, we are, we are complaining, we are protesting against the National Front because the police, they protect to the National Front. This is the main reason. They, they unnecessarily, they arrested our men. They refused to leave and the police moved in. Where are you, mate? 
At the end of the day, there were more than 300 arrests and many were injured. Among those injured were several policemen. The National Front was smuggled into the town hall through a back street, but no one, apart from the party faithful, were allowed inside with them. Keith Hatfield, News at 10, in Ealing. Let's talk about the end of the party. Okay. The way I, I mean, know this story is that the uh, basically Thatcher outmaneuvers them. So that's a totally kind of schematic like approach to mm. how it works. Uh, she makes us about swamping, about like a migrant swamping Britain. Um, and this kind of steals national front rhetoric or and and then um the party goes into decline and is, is replaced by the bmp i mean um, i guess it also exacerbates the tensions that we, we were talking about just then about between the populists and the fascists and 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 kind of we see that in the many many splits that have happened that happened in the early 80s um so I, yeah i guess i guess the question is what was Thatcher's impact on on them and how did they try to deal with it at the time yeah, I think before you get on to what Thatcher's impact was on them, you've got to kind of start just with what was the impact of Thatcher. Mm. You know, because I've talked about how in 70 to 74, the Tories were divided. They've got this unpopular leader, Edward Heath. You know, they're a party which people leave in. By the time Thatcher becomes leader of the Tories in what's it, 76, 77, mm -hmm. they're clearly much more viable electoral party and they're helped by a whole bunch of problems with the Labour Party. You know, this is a Labour Party that's now presided over mass unemployment, that um, is barely got a majority in Parliament, that keeps on losing votes in Parliament, that's had to go off and get a loan from the IMF, that started to introduce neoliberalism. It's very apparent in reality there's a real chance of the Tories winning the next election. And that, that happens before you get Thatcher's um, swamping comments. The... The National Front keeps on having the wind in its sails till about spring 77. And from that point anyway, it's already slightly in decline. Mm. The, Margaret Thatcher definitely has an impact. Um, when she makes her remarks about people being feeling swamped by an alien culture, and, you know, yeah, that word alien culture gets picked up a lot on the left. Mm. Um, it leads, for example, an absolutely amazing kick-ass um, Asian punk band, Alien Culture. Mm. Um, <laughs> Start with a K. Yeah, it's okay. First generation, illegal immigrants, second generation, children are delinquents, born between two cultures, born in a culture crossover. It's not the job. Don't have to pray for signs on day, but that's not what we're about. We just want to live out our lives, run in doors and sing our shout. Um, so when when that's said, 
very quickly Thatcher has a big boost in popularity. They look at the polls, she goes up enormously. She goes up like 10 points in, in a week or something. Gets a huge amount of favourable publicity. So that helps Thatcher. You, you can't get away from that. But it's also the case that, um, you know, the National Front, um, you know, these remarks taking place, I think, autumn 78. And as I've already said, the National Front's been on the skids since about spring 77. So that's a year and a half later. The National Front's demise, um, it starts with all this, um, all this anti-fascist opposition. Um, it makes it really, really difficult for the National Front to organise. And they have to start saying, essentially, what are we going to do? They could become a pure street party or they could become a pure electoral party, but it's not really possible anymore to do both because the people who might be attracted to electoralism, the Tories aren't going to go anywhere near, the ex-Tories aren't going to go anywhere near a National Front demonstration if they're going to get beaten up. So they have to choose. And essentially, actually, they choose elections mm -hmm. as a thing that will hold them together. So through 78 and 79, that's why they... They, they try and have this vast number of candidates, enough to have a party political broadcast. And they really do think they're going to get a breakthrough. But it gets harder and harder and harder, just even to hold an election meeting. I gave the example of Southall. There's 30 of them in the room and there's 8,000 people outside. Mm -hmm. It just gets harder to do it. Um, when it comes to that election, it seems to me pretty clear there's a relationship between the anti-fascist opposition which the National Front has faced and having this more successful competitor close to the mainstream. It's not just one or the other. The two have a relationship. If it was just Thatcher, then what that would mean is essentially what we always have to hope is along comes some really nasty right-wing authoritarian <laughs> who's not actually a fascist but is nearly a fascist because if they're really bad enough, that might take the wind out of the actual fascist cells. And we just know from Britain, from all the attempts that have been over the years and from Europe and from the world, that all, those, all the attempts have been to try and outflank the far right, how rarely that's worked. Even in Britain, you know, when Enoch Powell made his Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, the result was not thousands of people joined the Conservatives. The result, and he was a leading member of the Conservatives, the result was thousands of people joined the National Front. So it's all about the context. When Enoch Powell tacks hard to the right in 1968, the Tories don't get the credit for it, partly because um, Powell's actually just been sacked from the Tory front bench, mm -hmm. and partly because the National Front seemed to be growing. When Thatcher attacks to the right, this doesn't generally make racism more popular or acceptable. It makes her racism more acceptable and the racism in the National Front less acceptable because that's the National Front's already dying on its feet. It's already shrinking. It's already losing supporters. It's already doing worse in elections. People who've campaigned for it are already looking for an excuse to get out. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't, to my mind, you can't write the anti-fascism out of the story of, of why they collapsed. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to hear more anti-fascist content, please do subscribe to us on SoundCloud or any good podcast app. We rely on the donations of our Patreon supporters to continue doing this work. So if you have some money to spare and you'd like to support the podcast, please do go over to patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and give us $2 a month. It really is a massive help. You can buy David Renton's new book, Never Again, Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League, 1976 to 82, pretty much anywhere. We really do recommend it. Thanks for listening and bye. 12 rules.
Thank you.